Good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to worship this morning. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us, and we'd love to have a record of your attendance. Whether you are a longtime member, a first-time visitor, or someone that worships here on a regular basis, we ask that you would grab that pew pad at the end of the pew and complete the information therein and pass that to your neighbors. I have a few things to share with you this morning. First, we're excited for uh, a great time to happen this coming Saturday at the Roberts Farm. You'll see their address is listed here in the bulletin. We also ask that you would bring a side dish to share uh, and a lawn chair if you have one or a bag chair, one of those things just so you have a place to sit down. Uh, so hopefully you'll make uh, plans to be with us for that. It starts at 5 and ends at dusk. Uh, also, we, uh, those of us that come to worship on Wednesdays, uh, like to start worshiping uh, and Bible study with a meal. Uh, but one of us is going to have to step up and cook because there's nobody to help cook the third Wednesday of the month. So if you would like to be part of a team that would help provide a meal, for Bible study. It's usually cooking for about 25 to 30 people. Please talk to Laurie about that. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have to get pizza two, two Wednesdays in a row. And so I'm not sure that that's what everybody wants. Okay. Also, we're still in the process of raising money for the building fund. You'll see in the bulletin that to date we've raised $11,000 uh, towards our goal of $15,000. So if that's something that you would like to prayerfully be a part of, you can consider giving to that fund as well. We're in the midst of the peacemaking season here at the Presbyterian Church. And to that end, one of our members from the mission committee is going to give a minute for mission. So I invite Connie to come forward and uh, talk to us a little bit about the peacemaking offering. Okay, so um, last week Jack did this and he said 25% of the offering will go to this local area, 25% will go to the region, and 50% will go to global um, peace efforts. Um, I don't know if he said this or not because I didn't know I was going to have to do this until afterwards. So. Um, there's four issues that they're targeting the offering for. One is climate change, another is nonviolence, the third is poverty and racism, and the fourth is immigration and migration. And the one that I'm going to, is it a minute yet? Because I don't think. <laughs> okay, the one that I was going to talk about was one that was in the reference materials about world mission. Um, and it was about a woman who was homeless in Athens with two young children because a refugee camp, and the reason I picked it was because of your daughter, because it was the Moria refugee camp that burned. So she became homeless. She um, unknowingly got involved with drug dealers and was arrested and imprisoned. Her children were sent to a shelter, a migrant justice organization that our denomination helped support, helped this woman. Um, they got her two human rights lawyers who got her out of release from prison. Um, they helped her get housing and find a job. Um, as Christians, we are called to cast off fear, anxiety, discord, division, and welcome strangers. We are um, to promote dignity among those who flee war and poverty, and helping those who leave war areas is making peace. Thank you. That's great. That's awesome. We didn't even start the timer. One of those great gifts of being a Presbyterian is that we do collect these offerings throughout the year, and the peacemaking offering is collected until um, World Communion Sunday. And as we gather around the table, uh, the first Sunday of October, we'll obviously pray for peace around the world as we do every Sunday. But that's something that if you would like to contribute to that offering, um, those funds go directly. Uh, they don't go into our coffers at all. We split those up and send those to the places that uh, the denomination picks for us. Again, we're thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. Let's now prepare our hearts to worship the living God. Thy answer, O weird crowd. 
Please join me in the call to worship, Psalm 113, 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Come, let us worship the triune God. Please stand and join me with our opening hymn, number Jesus Christ be with you. And also with you. The call to confession comes from 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called, called children of God, and that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this when Christ is revealed, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in Christ purify themselves just as he is pure. Please join me in the prayer of confession. Everlasting God, we must confess how we have not lived as your people. We serve many masters, work, wealth, power, addictions, yet find no hope in them. We hear, we hear the, the cries, cries of the poor and shut the doors of our hearts to them. We ridicule those who expose their hopes and dreams to us. Forgive us and heal us of our brokenness. Make us well so that by our healing we might be hope and the love others need in their lives. As Jesus Christ brought these gifts to us, calling us to be faithful with grace, peace, and joy entrusted to us. Please take a moment for silent confession. Amen. 
Friends, hear this assurance of pardon that comes to us from the Old Testament. See, I have set your sins as far away as the east is from the west. Though your sins may be as scarlet, I have washed them white as snow. The good news in Christ's coming is that He has separated us from our sin, that our old life is gone and a new life remain. So know that you have been forgiven and be at peace. And pray also for me, a sinner. Amen. Testament lesson comes from Amos 8, verses 4 through 7. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, so that, that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the aphob smaller and the shekel heavier, and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. seated and at this time I invite the children to come forward for a children's sermon. Good morning ladies. So I have a question. Let's pretend that I have a bag of cookies in my hand. Okay. And let's pretend that I'm your mom and I say go to the neighbors and give them two cookies. Okay, so I give you the two cookies and you're walking to the neighbors. Now there's probably some thoughts that are going through your mind. The first thought is, why do I have to do this, right? Okay, second thought is, the neighbor has no idea that I'm coming, right? Do you think? So what would happen if you were to eat a cookie on the way to the neighbor's house? Nothing would happen, would it? No, nope. you could eat that cookie, and you could still take a cookie to the neighbor. Neighbor's like, wow, that kid's really nice. And then you could walk home, and then your mom would be like, do you want a cookie now? And what would you say? Yes, I'd like to try a cookie now, right? Now, here's what's crazy. Is that the right thing to do? Yeah, you had to think about that for a second. Didn't you? <laughs> Okay, so the story that we're going to read in the Bible today is kind of a weird story in that Jesus says there's, there's a guy that kind of did that. He kind of took cookies that weren't his and kept them for himself. And then he realized he was in trouble. And when he realized he was in trouble, do you know what he did? He went to the neighbors and said, let's talk a little bit about how many times I brought you cookies. That's not really what happened. But he was trying to like make it so that he wasn't going to be in as much trouble as possible. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't want to be in as much trouble as you think you were going to be in? Have you ever been in trouble? You've been in trouble, and you've been in trouble, right? A little bit, yeah. Do you like being in trouble? No. So it's best to not be in trouble, is that right? And so I'm going to teach you a cool word today. It's called shrewd. Can you say that? Shrewd. And so Jesus...
Jesus says the man that had been a manager for a long time, and he'd been kind of taking money on his own, he was shrewd because he went back and he divided what people owed his boss in half. And Jesus said, you did the right thing because now everybody's happy. The owner of this business, the cookie maker, if you will, still gets all of the stuff that comes back to him. But also, you've made friends with people that you were kind of stealing from before, and now they're going to take care of you. And it's strange because the whole story doesn't make any sense in that Jesus is usually against bad things happening. But in this instance, you know what Jesus says? Eat the cookie. Jesus says, can you believe Jesus says eat the cookie? This is not a trick. Can you believe that? Do you think Jesus talks about cookies? No, he really doesn't say that. But he says it's good to be a shrewd thinker, a shrewd manager. Okay? So we're going to pray. I know this was very confusing. It confused me as well. So we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to help us. Okay? Let's pray. Dear God, you rock. And we love you. And we're so glad that you teach us how to be shrewd. We don't understand it, but we're trying. We love you. Amen. Okay, go sit down. Any day when we sing Bob Marley in church is a good day, amen? Thank you, guys. Our text this morning is from Luke chapter 16. It's going to be the first 13 verses of the chapter. Hear God's holy word. Then Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought up to him that this man was squandering his property. 
So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, What will I do? Now that my master is taking this position away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning the master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. The manager said to the man, Take your bills, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. And then he asked another, And how much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. The manager said to the man, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. May the Lord add blessing and understanding to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for your story, and we thank you for the way that you interact with us in the form of story. God, now we ask that you would send your spirit upon us. Give us the strength, Lord, to understand this story and apply it to our lives. All this we say in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The last few weeks of the lectionary have been uh, a little perplexing. It's kind of odd to read this section of the scripture um, after Easter because these are the things that are kind of leading up uh, to Jesus being crucified, but we have to have something to read in ordinary time, and so we get a text like this. If you remember, last week I told you, I uh, reminded you, that uh, we went off the lectionary just a little bit to catch up, and that's because in the spring, uh, the lectionary has us read the first half of Luke 15, and in the fall, read the second half of Luke 15. And I didn't want to do that, to be completely honest with you, because Luke 15 is ultimately about three different sets of loss. It's about the loss of one sheep getting away from a hundred, it's about one coin getting away from ten, and it's about one brother that walks away and ends up becoming uh, the, the brother who was welcomed home into eternity. And I thought in the spring we all needed to read that whole story together, and so I kind of manipulated our readings a bit. In preparing for this sermon this week, it would have been a whole lot easier for us to have read Luke 15 last week leading into Luke 16, but, you know, hindsight is 2020, and that's okay. Chances are you probably, have, have you all heard this text before? This is, this is a text that many ministers choose to skip over. It's probably the oddest of parables in the New Testament. Um, it's one that I wish that I didn't have to preach that I don't have to preach it, but I'm going to preach it. And the gist of the story is that Jesus says a person who was a liar, a cheater, a thief, an embezzler is intelligent and is worthy of being friends with the disciples. Now, it's one thing, I think, for us to look at Jesus in the way that he interacted with the woman at the well, or with the woman caught in adultery, the crazy naked man in the cemetery. But Jesus now is saying somebody that we know has committed an illegal act, something that's still punishable in the 21st century, is something that the disciples should befriend. And Jesus, Jesus is actually in favor of this. And I think the only way that we can 
we can really kind of try to make sense of this is to put the whole context in kind of a, an ordinary level of understanding. And it really means that we need to go back and see that Jesus was just speaking to large crowds and there were some people that were listening to his, his uh, parables and those people were scribes and Pharisees. We might call them tattletales. Essentially what was happening is they were sent from Jerusalem to kind of look in and see what this guy was teaching and then report back to Jerusalem. They were the religion police. They were reporting to the temple. And so most of what their stories were were that Jesus was eating and fellowshipping and welcoming people that were unorthodox. They were outside normality and they really were just plain sinners. They were objectionable. So as Jesus tells the story of the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and then ultimately the prodigal son, the story continues about God's risky love. Now any of us that are siblings probably at some point in time have heard the story of the prodigal son and said, oh my gosh, if my brother or sister ever did that, that sounds exactly like something my brother or sister would do. They would take all of my money, all of my parents' money, run away with it, and then come home and still get to live with mom and dad and, and really kind of take our money. Any of you that are a sibling has had some sort of almost jealousy about a sibling, another sibling. They're your mom's favorite, their dad's favorite. And so as Jesus kind of tells this story, it's odd that the people that are hearing the story would say, oh my goodness, it's right to welcome back somebody that squandered money. So think about that perspective. Think about that story that kind of then leads into this story of the shrewd manager. Jesus turns his tension away from those who were trying to undermine his ministry. He's not really teaching or giving a parable directly to those tattletale temple police. Instead, he just wants to have a, a conversation about, about a kid who's been welcomed home, but then also about a party that was thrown for that child. And he jumps into this next parable, and he turns the crowd to a different kind of understanding. You can almost, if you read 15 into 16, if you read that whole saga together, you can almost imagine Jesus literally turning and directing his next conversation to somebody differently. He's gone from shocking the temple ears, the religious police, now he's gonna shock those people present. You may have heard me say this once or twice, you may be tired of me saying this, but the people of Israel in the first century were incredibly impoverished. They were paying close to 95 to 99% of their income in taxes to Rome. They had to pay tax collectors that were Jewish people that were uh, employed by Rome to collect those taxes. Those people probably embezzled more than we could ever imagine. And now we have a story of a wealthy person, which is an anomaly in the first century, if you were a Jewish uh, resident there. You have a rich person who's rich enough to have a manager, and you find out that the manager has been stealing from the wealthy landowner. And he's stealing things like oil and wheat, things that are marketable products, things that would be a black market issue back in the first century. If he could figure out a way to, to sell these to other people, he could make money. He could take money from his wealthy landowner who's likely never going to miss that money, and then maybe he could even help somebody out as well. We don't know that he ever helped anybody except for himself. But he says, this is how I'm going to make my living. Now, chances are that rich landowner was probably Greek or Roman, likely probably wasn't a fellow Jewish person. And so, uh, because it was very difficult to be a wealthy, wealthy Jewish person in the first century. Maybe they were, that really is not the biggest part of the story. The biggest part of the story is <clears throat> that the manager was Jewish. And so he was breaking most of what the Old Testament text laws were about being fair and trading. 
And so the manager finds out, and he's going to fire him. He says, I'm going to come visit you, and I'm going to take a look at your books. I'm going to check your accounting, and you're likely going to lose your job. Oh, my gosh. I can't, I can't believe, number one, that I got caught. But number two, now I don't know how else to make a living. I'm too proud to beg. I can't go back on the streets and, and beg. And I'm too weak to, to work. I can't go dig a ditch for a living. How on earth am I going to make a substance for my family? And so, while he's been squandering his master's money, which is the same Greek word as what the prodigal son did to the father, mind you, he squandered this man's wealth as well. Now somebody's going to get punished for doing the wrong thing. At least that's what we're thinking as we're hearing this story. But he goes to somebody that owes his boss money and says, how much is your actual bill? You owe a thousand units of oil. Okay, cut that in half. And he goes to somebody else. Okay, how much do you owe my boss? You owe a hundred pounds of wheat. Okay, make that 80. So what he's done essentially is he's making friends with the lowly. He's cut their bill down. They don't owe as much as they did before. And he's also making it so they're not going to kill him when he's out on the street begging for his life. He lacks strength, but he has intelligence. He's maybe losing his job, and given his record, nobody's likely going to hire him. And so he's figured out some way to make the best of a terrible situation. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the manager is met by his boss. The boss comes to town, and he finds out exactly what's happened. And the master says to the manager, you're a genius. You've actually managed quite well. It's a paradox for us. How can this boss look at this man who has been stealing from him for God knows how many years and say, you've actually done something quite well. You are shrewd. You've made for yourselves friends out of mammon. You've made for your friends people that are likely shrewd managers themselves. You've done an unrighteous thing. You've done a dishonest thing. This is unjust money, but you have managed it well. Now, the story could end there, and Jesus could say, you know, don't hang out with either kinds of these people. That's what we would probably expect. That's what we would tell our children. Don't go get friends with the mob, right? None of us want our friends and our family to be associated with the Sopranos. That's not something that any of us want for our family. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus then looks at his disciples and says, go make friends exactly like this. Go find people that are willing to do whatever it takes to survive. Go find people who are going to have benefits because their dishonest money can be used for the ministry. It's a rare thing whenever I agree with Jerry Falwell about something. But back in the 80s when uh, the, the national lottery system was just kind of first getting started. Some of you may remember Jerry Falwell uh, was a famous, I guess, infamous, whatever, uh, minister on TV. And so they asked him, uh, the news anchors asked him, would you ever accept money if one of your parishioners or somebody wanted to donate to your church if they had won the lottery? And Jerry Falwell was very famous for talking badly about the lottery system he called it the devil's money, in fact. And so the reporters wanted to catch Jerry Falwell in a little bit of a, a hiccup. Would you, who were always asking people on national television to send you money, would you ever accept money if it came from the lottery system? And Jerry's response was this. It may be the devil's money, 
But the Lord can sure use it. The devil has had it long enough, brother. And it seems as if he's looking at Luke chapter 16 when he says that. The message that Christian faith offers over and over again is that there is nothing sacred about money. Let me say that again. The message that Christianity offers us over and over again is that there is nothing sacred about money. In fact, rather than being a holy icon, money is just a tool. Money is used to accomplish worthwhile things. It's not just to be uh, put on an altar and bowed down to. We don't worship our offering when we collect it. Money is a resource. And believe it or not, it's the most renewable resource on the planet. And if you don't believe me, watch how much money our Fed will print between now and Christmas. If we need money, we'll just print more money, right? Greece has been doing that for years, and they didn't go bankrupt until a few years ago. If it's truly the devil's money, if it's truly the devil's plaything, Jesus is saying you just have to figure out how to best use it for ministry. When the master leaves his life of luxury in Jerusalem and goes down to this lowly position where he hopes to fire a manager, he suddenly finds out that this manager has become a very popular steward. And if that wealthy landowner actually does fire the manager, guess what happens? He brings dishonor on himself because he knowingly hired someone who was doing backdoor deals. Nobody would want to do business with this wealthy landowner now because he can't keep his manager in line. He didn't cancel all of the debts. He just made those debts be less than what they were originally, benefiting everybody except the person that was owed money. Jesus says, inevitably, finances will fail. Money will fail. Wealth will fail. But if you make friends that are dishonorable with money, eventually there's going to be a way for that to become an honorable situation. Money is this resource. Jesus is teaching a lesson. The world needs to understand that all of our desires, chasing money, it really isn't something that Christ wants us to do. Because money, or the love of money, may be said to be the root of all evil, but money is just like chasing or being addicted to a screwdriver, or a hammer, or a vehicle, or a home. Those are not necessarily depictions of how your wealth is in this world, but if you are so caught up on those types of things, Jesus ultimately says you can't worship both God and that which you put your trust in. Jesus is not anti-money. In fact, Jesus and other gospels will say, pay taxes to Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to the Lord what is the Lord's. Therefore, basically saying the Lord didn't create money. That's something that humanity has created and controls and manipulates. So the best thing for you to do is to find somebody who may be dishonest, but knows how to use that tool effectively. We've talked at great length over the last several months that we're raising money to help fix things here at the church. And you are giving us money to do those things. Now, chances are you trust the people that will make decisions to fix the church. Is that a fair assessment? And you would hope that the people in charge would say, we're going to, to find the best at the cheapest rate to accomplish this task as quickly as possible. Right? That's the hope. That's the hope. Well, what if we just... What if Jack and I just decide we're going to fix everything 
We're going to do it for half the price and keep all the money for ourselves. Who's in favor? Jack and I are, right? We're all about that. <laughs> we'll figure out a way to make it look good, right? That's not the best way to handle what our wealth is. And I think it's very shocking to have this story in the Bible. I think it's a very shocking thing. Most of the time, what we're supposed to be dealing with is figuring out how to give some of our wealth to the Lord so that it can be used for God's glory. And here Jesus is saying, hey, cut the middleman out. If you've got somebody that can, can make more money for you and do some shrewd business dealings, that's going to benefit the kingdom. And I just keep scratching my head like, this is really? This is really Jesus? If you put our Old Testament text, the thing that Jamie read for us this morning, if you put it in perspective, God is somewhat anti-rich and pro-poor. That's not a new learning for us. We should understand that. But today's parable says, hook ourselves to those who know how to work the system financially speaking so that you can be in better shape. There's three possibilities that I think are the ultimate understanding of this text. And, and there's three lessons. We're going to go through these three lessons really quickly. Lesson one from this parable, it's only money. As I said before, it's only money. The rich landowner can make more of it. He already has a bunch of it. He's probably not going to miss any of it. So it's really not about the money. Don't worry about your money. Just worry about how you use that as a tool. It isn't evil. It could be done. You could do things right with it. That may be the lesson, but I think lesson two may be even better. Lesson two is friendship and a good reputation count for more than money. And here's an example. Mother Teresa was likely one of the poorest or most impoverished saints of the church. However, Mother Teresa knew how to manage money and get evil people to subsidize her ministry for the poor. People threw money at Mother Teresa, right? For whatever reason, we don't know why they did it. Maybe they were guilty for having wealth. We know that a lot of people around the world that we would probably think are dictators or maybe even very much corrupt politicians, possibly even terrorists, gave money to Mother Teresa, and she never turned any of that money away. Instead, she took that money, she dealt with it fairly, and she gave it to the poor. Lesson three, even less than perfect people like you and me stand a chance with God. Now, oftentimes in Sunday school, in Bible study, in church, we talk about the holy people from the Bible. And we just think to ourselves, man, if I could just be the kind of biblical character like these people that are, are so well known, if I, could, if I could help the world like that, Maybe, maybe I could truly be a servant of God. Noah. Man, who wouldn't want to be Noah? So righteous that only he and his family were saved. Now, I love that story. What I love most about the story of Noah is the part where they get off the boat. They get off the ark. And do you know the first thing that Noah did when he got off the ark? He planted a vineyard. Do you know why he planted a vineyard? Because he liked wine. And as soon as he got those ripe grapes, you know what he did? He got smashed. He was so drunk that he was naked and his children had to cover up his nakedness. And then they became cursed because they saw their father naked. That's a great biblical character, right? How about Abraham? Father Abraham, the father of many nations. Man, could we be like Abraham? 
You know, Abraham, the guy that didn't believe God that his wife was going to be able to bear a child, and so he took a concubine, and, and they became pregnant, and they had a child, and he raised that child until his wife got jealous, and then he kicked that other wife and her child out so that his wife was happy. Let's be like Jacob. Jacob! Jacob! What an awesome person. Jacob was ultimately the person whose name was changed to be Israel. That name that represents all Jewish people today. He lied to his father. He cheated his brother out of a birthright. He scammed his way into richness. He embezzled from his father-in-law. He wrestled with God. Yet an entire population of people is named after him. Moses. Who wouldn't want to be Moses? Why did he go meet the burning bush? Because he was running away because he'd killed someone. He was a murderer. David, a man after God's own heart. I, I won't mention it because there are children here. Go read that story. If you need to be reminded of what David did. Ezekiel. This is my favorite cat from the Bible. Ezekiel was so crazy. Do you know how he cooked his food? He lit poop on fire and cooked his food. And he has a whole book dedicated to his prophecy. And don't even get me started on the women of the Bible. You think that I've just named all these men. There are some crazy women in the Bible too. Again, I'm not going to tell this story out loud. But go read the story of Lot's daughters. Go look what Tamar did with Judah. Ruth. Ruth. David's great-grandmother. Go look what Ruth did so that she could have a warm place to sleep. You know what their sin was? It wasn't the Lord details. All of those people are great great characters of the Bible, but all of their sin was connected to only looking out for number one. They were selfish. They were radically independent and selfish people. Just like me. Just like you. We are just like the characters of the Bible. We look out for number one. I won't ask for you to raise your hand, but chances are most of you here have looked at your retirement portfolio to know how much money you have left or how much you're saving so that you can stop working. Think about that. We're working to save up enough money so that we can stop working and do nothing. At 65 or 67 or 68, whatever, are, is your life supposed to end at that point in time? That's not necessarily biblical. It's a strange, strange thing that we try to gather as many resources as we can so that we are comfortable. Jesus is just saying, you're right. That's what you're going to do. And somebody does it better than you. They're a shrewd manager and you need to get them on your team. Because they understand how to make it so that you can have the best bang for your buck. The buck that doesn't matter. The buck that we'll just print and make more of. Christ is saying that this wonderful story, this thing that we're all trying to pay attention to, it's all about one word. It's about grace. Grace covers all of our selfishness. It covers the selfishness of the shrewd manager. And if God is willing to forgive the people in the Bible that murdered other people, I think God can forgive me. And I know that God can forgive you. So while this may be the most perplexing, confusing, challenging text in the Bible... Let's embrace the notion that God's kingdom is sufficiently capable of offering respite 
for whatever our mammon happens to be. Mammon can be translated in so many ways. Wealth, prosperity, money, love, lust, whatever it is. God just says, don't worship something else besides me. That's the sin. You can't love us both. So know that you have been forgiven and be set free. Let's embrace the grace of Christ while admittedly being very confused about this story. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Now let us stand and declare that which we believe in the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's now time for us to continue our worship by the giving of our tithes and offerings. You may be seated. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you so much for these gifts that you've given us in this life. Lord, as we return a portion of these gifts to you now, we ask for your wisdom and for your courage to use these gifts in a manner in which you see fitting. We say all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's bind our hearts and minds together as we lift our petitions to our Lord and to our King. Let us pray. God, you are our God, and you are worthy to be praised. We thank you, Lord, for this cosmos that you created. We thank you, Lord, for all of creation. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of being alive, being able to enjoy the company of friends, of family, the fellowship among believers. We thank you, Lord, for this church. We thank you, God, for the grace that you have extended to each of us. 
And God, we ask that you be patient with us as we learn to extend grace to others. God, we're thankful that we have the freedom to gather and worship in a a place like this. And we know, Lord, that the freedoms we have in this country come at a great and severe cost historically to those that we call veteran. We thank you, Lord, for those who have historically fought to keep us free. And we thank you for those who continue that fight this day. And at the same time, God, we know that you ask us to pray also for our enemies. And so we do so at the same time. We pray, Lord, for Christians around the globe who are persecuted because of their faith, something we don't understand at all in this country, Lord. We pray for those whose names we do not know who gather for worship today out of fear of persecution, suffering, imprisonment, or even death. We pray, Lord, for the silent churches in places like China and the Middle East and Indonesia. We pray, Lord, for any person who is persecuted for their faith. We ask, God, that you would give them strength. God, we pray for those who need for you to be the great physician. And we're thankful, Lord, for those who have been called to the ministry of healing. We pray, God, for those who will literally pray this day for their daily bread. We ask, God, that you would open our eyes and see their need and try to meet it, Lord. God, because we are a community of faith, we pray for those who are seated to our right and to our left, in front of us and behind us. And in the stillness of this moment, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Holy God, we are amazed by your grace and the glory of your ways. We thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to earth that he showed us how to live and taught us also to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us stand together and sing our final hymn, hymn number 729, Lord, I Want to Be a Christian.
watched uh, a pretty interesting, uh, I'll call it a series for lack of a better term, on Apple TV recently. It's called The Big Con. Has anybody heard about The Big Con? It happens locally, actually. It's about a lawyer from eastern Kentucky that was in cahoots with a judge in Cabell County. And he happened to embezzle $550 million from Social Security. He figured out that each time he would do a disability case or an SSI case, the government allowed $6,000 to do the legal work for that. And so the judge said, hey, the more people we can get on disability and SSI, the more money you and I can make. And so the judge federally and nationally had a 98% disability and ruling in favor of disability, which is like 60 times more than most judges have in the world or in the nation. And so Eric Kahn was able to make about $6 million a year. So $6,000 per case. He did on average 1,000 cases a year the first two years. Then he hired more lawyers. And over the span of about 10 or 15 years was able to get, I think it was $584 million. Now you watch that and you're like, daggone it, like that's a thief, right? At the end of the series, the narrator comes on and says, but you know what? There weren't jobs in rural eastern Kentucky. There weren't many schools in eastern Kentucky. The mines had all shut down. There weren't many roads. So Eric Kahn, while he made millions of dollars for himself, at least allowed the poor to have a meal. Now, I'm not in favor of a lawyer doing that. I think it's quite wrong. But that matches up pretty well with what Jesus said today, doesn't it? Fine. Let's get that guy on our finance committee, right? That's what I said, not really. But like, that's how shocking what Jesus said today really is. Because he would come out being in favor of Eric Kahn the con artist that he was, because he got poor people taken care of. That's the radical nature of the gospel. I'm not endorsing it. Don't shoot me. Shoot Jesus. That's already been done, right? They killed him for it. His radical notion got him killed. I think it's much easier for us to figure out ways to take care of the poor legally. Amen? So let's do that together. Now receive the blessing of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May He be with us all until we meet again, either here or His glorious kingdom come. Amen and amen. Happy Sunday.